0: So what's the difference between the Disney and the Universal theme parks in Orlando?
1: Disney's rides are just a little bit on the tame side, so you can bring grandma if grandma's hearty. Universal, they lean much more to what would appeal to your teenager once they've outgrown that princess stuff. Coming up, Jason Cochran provides a behind-the-scenes look at how Central Florida's
0: top visitor attractions compete for your time and money. In Switzerland, you can take a ride for free in a river.
2: So like in almost every Swiss city, you can jump in the river and just swim down, let you float down, and then you reach the lake where
3: you can have a swim.
0: We'll look at the surprises you'll find in Swiss cities or get some fresh air and exercise with a day hike while you're on vacation.
3: In Europe, trailheads are actually in small towns, and those small towns are serviced by amazing public transportation.
0: From amusement parks to mountain trails, we've got vacation strategies for you in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. The world will get through this coronavirus pandemic, and we will be traveling again soon, I hope. For now, let's allow ourselves to be inspired to plan future adventures and to celebrate the welcome the world is waiting to offer us. Thanks for joining us today for Travel with Rick Steves. Whether Orlando is on your radar or you prefer something completely different, we've got expert advice for your travels on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Jason Cochran updates us on how to come out ahead at the theme parks, and we'll explore some affordable fun you can have in Switzerland's notoriously expensive cities. We're at 877 7425 But first, let's build in some fresh air and exercise on your next trip to Europe. Cassandra Overby researches and writes the guidebook Explore Europe on Foot. She recommends cultural adventures on long and short-distance trails across Europe. That also gets you beyond the crowds at many prime destinations. Hey, Cassandra.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I know from my own experience, because I run around Europe in a car a lot, you stop at a turnout and you enjoy the view... But if you just walk even a couple hundred yards, it's a whole different world. You forget about the road, and you're immersed in the wonders of Europe. Right. Of course, you can stop your car and see, let's say, the west coast of Ireland, the Cliffs of Moher, most dramatic cliff stop anywhere that I can imagine. And people walk a few hundred yards in either direction, but you've got a 10-mile walk you've talked about here on the Cliffs of Moher.
3: This walk on the Cliffs of Moor is a really great way to get away from those crowds and to see a little more of the stunning coastline.
0: And this is the far west of Ireland, which right. is the far west of Europe, where the people gaze out and they say, ah, oh, the next parish over is Boston. Okay.
3: Right. I mean, the land quite stunningly just drops off into the ocean.
0: In fact, before they put a barrier there, I would inch out on my belly and I would literally look over that black rock and yes. it plummets a couple hundred yards right down into the sea. And you're sitting there like a human suction cup worrying about a freak gust of wind blowing right. you over but you got to be there and you're you're looking at the backs of the birds as they fly below you and you're you're looking at the surf crashing below you and that ledge goes for miles and miles and now there are trails there that are safe and designed for people to enjoy
3: that scene yes and actually it's a really great way to beat the traffic the car traffic that's at the cliffs of Moor, also because those parking lots really fill up
2: yeah. so you
3: can actually start with your walk in the town just north of cliffs of moore and then walk to cliffs of Moor through that area and farther south one town south you get to see some really amazing ruins that most people don't ever notice And then you can even take a hiking shuttle back to your first town. So
0: there'd be a bus that would take you back. Yes. In your book, you talk about some hikes are there and back, and other ones are loops. And also, in your book, you talk about it's important to be able to abbreviate your trip if you choose.
3: Well, you know, sometimes you fall in love with a hike that's a little too long. Maybe you just don't want to do, you know, 10 miles in a day. Maybe you'd like to do only five miles, whether that's because you just don't have an interest in walking that long or because you want to shorten it for other travel plans. In Europe, it's really easy to shorten hikes because there are things like cable cars, post buses, hiking shuttles, all sorts hop on, of ways. Hop off
0: buses. Exactly. They've got these tour buses I know that go along the cliffs of more, So you could go from that first town to the actual famous cliffs where all the tourists are and then intend to have gone to the next town but decided when you get there, you know, that's enough. Let's just have lunch here and we'll take the bus back to our starting place. Yes. And also, I think a lot of people don't realize how easy it is to get to the trailheads.
3: Right. And that's because, you know, if you walk a lot in the United States, you realize trailheads are in wilderness and you need a car to get there and that's pretty tough when you're traveling. But... In Europe, trailheads are actually in small towns, and those small towns are serviced by amazing public transportation, trains, funiculars, buses. That makes it incredibly easy, if you're not traveling by car even, to get to a hike, even a day hike by train, do it, and then make your way back to your original No, That's a
0: very good point, because here in Seattle, if I'm going to take a hike up in the Cascades, I need to drive there to that trailhead. But all of the hikes that you're talking about are accessible from a town which has a train station. Yes. Or nearly all of them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cassandra Overby. Her book is called Explore Europe on Foot. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kristen's calling from Delray Beach in Florida. Kristen, have you been thinking about hiking in Europe?
4: Yes, I have. And my husband and I have hiked in Europe. And it was interesting to hear your talk about Ireland because that was the first place we hiked in County Wicklow. Uh-huh. 10 years ago or so. It was really, really wonderful. And we've done a little hiking in Tuscany. But lately, we've been spending a lot of time in Paris and walking a lot of Paris. But we've been thinking about going to southern France. And I'd like to do hiking there. We're both in our mid-70s now. And so, you know, really athletic kind of steep mountain hiking is isn't for us, but we do like to hike. Um, I love to bird, and when we go to Europe, I love to see if I can get some new birds to my list that Mm -hmm. we don't see in this country.
0: Kristen is talking about gentle walks where people can, uh, you know, take it easy but enjoy that kind of beautiful nature. What do you think of Cassandra in the case of France for a couple of one-day walks?
3: Ooh, so in the south of France, like she was talking about, just outside of Lourdes, there's a hike called Pic de Jour, and you can actually take the funicular up, to the top of that hill, and then you can wind your way down on really pretty trails that have a great view of Lord. And if you've never been to Lord, it is one of the most fantastic experiences ever. You know, you have people who have made the pilgrimage there, who are doing all of the different ceremonies. Thousands of people so at night is, with the candles. It's spelled
0: L O U R D S. Right. It is a spectacle to be there, whether you're Catholic or not, to see that amazing display of faith and people from all corners coming there in hopes of some miraculous healing and people from all over the world volunteering. And then it's right at the gateway of the Pyrenees. Mm -hmm. And you can go down south of there to a place called Cirque de Gavarnie which is an amazing walk also. So, uh, What is that one? Cirque de de Gavarni. uh, Cirque is, it feels like an amphitheater, a natural amphitheater, Uh and you walk down this valley, and I just felt like a little shepherd boy in in the south of the the, the mountains of France. Uh Kristen, thanks for your your call, and good luck with your hikes. Oh,
4: thank you for taking my call. You bet. Thank you for the information. It's so helpful.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cassandra Overby. Her book is Explore Europe on Foot. And Cassandra, I just want to review a couple more of these day hikes. Um, Arthur's Seat outside of Edinburgh. When we go to Edinburgh, as many of us do, we see this wonderful sort of volcanic nub, and it's just sort of inviting. You can hike up to that?
3: You can. So you can go from the old town and hike out to Arthur's Seat, and once you get out there, it's kind of amazing. You have one of the best views ever of Edinburgh and the beautiful architecture, but you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. You're surrounded by scrub brush, and there are beautiful birds. So it's a way to feel like you are completely in the wilderness while being in Edinburgh.
0: And I took it one step further. I rented a kilt and did it in a kilt.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I
4: love
0: that. (laughs) All right. And you got another walk that you talk about in your book on Omaha Beach. Yeah. And uh, it just looks like an evocative opportunity to walk literally along the beach where, what, 2,400 Americans died on that day.
3: Right. So it's one of the most incredible ways to actually experience World War II history that I know of. Today, the beach couldn't be more peaceful. You have kids playing in the water, seagulls shrieking overhead. But when you walk, you actually get to see beyond that. You see the memorials. You see the barbed wire up on the hill in mm-hmm. the German bunkers. And it's a really incredible walk. The beach is five miles long, right. so you can walk part of that. You can walk all the way down and back. But it also allows you to really have that contemplative experience and process everything that you've seen in the cemeteries and the museums.
0: Uh, You also talk about Mount Vesuvius. I mean, we know Vesuvius because it blew its top in 79 AD and created a a lava flow and a a mudslide that buried Pompeii. You can actually have a hike up to Mount Mount Vesuvius, or what do we have there?
3: You can. So from the ruins of Pompeii, you can actually take a bus up Mount Vesuvius into the national park there, Mm -hmm. and from there you can do a walk on the rim of Vesuvius, and you really don't understand how Vesuvius could have wreaked that much havoc until you're up there and you look down and you see how flat everything is going to the Bay of Naples and it puts everything in a completely different perspective.
0: It wreaked havoc and it also reeks of sulfur.
3: It does and you can look into the crater there, into the rim. The
0: rocks are hot. My, My shoes were hot. Yes. And you look down into the crater and then you look out over the Bay of Naples and you can imagine the horror of that day when that mountain probably lost a third of its height. I mean, I've seen ancient paintings of Mount Vesuvius before it blew. It was a a very classic kind of pyramid-shaped mountain and now it's got this big hole in the top. What about Lake Bled in Slovenia? When you see one photograph of Slovenia, uh, the little country in the north of what was Yugoslavia... You see a gorgeous lake with an island in it, a little church on top of the island, and then a a castle on the bluff overlooking the lake. I know there's a trail that goes all around that lake.
3: Yeah, so you can walk along the trail there. It's paved. It's really nice, especially if you want something that's more ADA accessible or if you have a stroller, if you're doing Mm -hmm. some family walking. But it's very peaceful, so you get to pass by the little town of Bled. You get to pass by that castle. You can take a detour Mm -hmm. up and go see it and then walk and get all of the different angles on that little island that's so photographed.
0: for a photographer, it would be great.
3: Yes, and there are actually all sorts of little cafes sprinkled around that have locals sitting at them because not a lot of people have heard of this walk, and so you can go and actually be with these locals, have your little pastry. And this
0: is walking around Lake Bled, B-L-E-D, in Slovenia, and then Croatia, just to the south, you can't miss Plitvice National Park. And what I love about Plitvice is They've got these boardwalks that go under waterfalls and down these dramatic lakes, these terraced lakes, connected by thousands of waterfalls. And uh, it's really crowded near the car parks and the hotels, but it's a vast park, isn't it?
3: It is. So you can actually get away from the boardwalk area and walk some of the ridges that surround that lake area The nice thing is that you can have some views actually down into that, and so you get to be above and get a different perspective as well. So
0: that's Plitvice, a P-L-I-T-V-I-C-E national park in Croatia. And then finally, if you want no elevation gain at all, but you want beautiful countryside, the Netherlands are wonderful because they're perfectly flat. And there's a walk that you talk about at Kinderdijk.
3: So this is one of my favorite walks in Europe because it's so unexpected. You can actually ride your bike out from Rotterdam to Kinderdijk if you'd Mm -hmm. like. And then you walk out on this dike that's surrounded by windmills from, you know, the 1700s, and a lot of these windmills are still functioning, and they have windmill tenders. So you're
0: actually walking on a dike, meaning you're on elevated a five or ten yards above the polder land. Yeah. The Polderland, yeah. And you've got a nice view because uh, everything stretches forever. It does. And you see these windmills breaking the horizon.
3: And you can even stop in. There are little museums, and there are tenders that you can ask because you'll see them switching the direction of the blades. Oh yeah. And so you have this great walk. It's perfect perfect for a picnic because there are little benches sprinkled throughout, and you just go down and double back. It's not very long, but it's incredibly scenic.
0: And every time I'm in that, you know, in the Netherlands and I'm hiking in a situation like that, I just can't help myself from saying everything's so Dutch. Yes. I mean, it's just the reality.
3: And go at your own pace. Take a full day, take two hours, take 30 minutes.
0: Cassandra Overby, you are an inspiration with your enthusiasm for this other dimension of Europe, and your book is a great tool for enjoying that, Explore Europe on Foot. Thanks, Cassandra.
3: Thank you so much.
0: You'll find links to Cassandra's book, Explore Europe on Foot, and her blog with this week's show details at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll explore the romance of Swiss cities with a local guide in just a bit. But first, if you have kids, at some point you'll probably be going on vacation to Orlando. Strategies for family trips to Central Florida, that's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. It's painful to think of how many people in the travel and hospitality industry are out of work right now due to coronavirus shutdowns. Our hearts go out to all the people in the Orlando area who find themselves unemployed due to the closure of the theme parks. The following interview was recorded three months before the Disney and Universal parks were closed. Let's anticipate with Jason Cochran what it'll be like again when they're able to resume operations and welcome visitors back to Central Florida. There's one guidebook in America that outsells my Rick Steves' Italy guidebook, and it's the guidebook to Disney World. It's a huge market, the top domestic attraction for working-class and middle-class Americans, and even for many visitors from overseas. Jason Cochran writes the Frommer Guide to Disney World Universal and Orlando 2020, and he's back to get us up to date on Orlando, America's leading theme park and the adjacent attractions. Jason, thanks for joining us. Hi.
1: It's great to be back with you.
0: I just always am pretty much impressed by your ability to sort through this massive collection of (laughs) parks and help people before their trip get it all organized in a smart fashion. And uh, the stakes are high because you got a car full of kids in a lot of cases. Now, I have to be honest, Jason. My mission as a travel teacher is to inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando. And your gig is to help people enjoy Orlando and its theme parks. And your book sells a lot. It's a huge market. It's a big responsibility on your part. So, as a travel writer, and you write a lot of different kinds of travel pieces and books and so on, why do you work on Orlando? What draws Americans to Orlando? Why is it so popular?
1: Well, there's like five different interesting topics within that question. I think the first thing I want to say is I wish people traveled internationally more, too. But I have to admit that there are some people who can't or don't want to, and of course, their needs should be served as well, which is one reason I put this together, because Orlando is... Such a minefield. Not just if you have kids in tow. I mean, it's incredibly complicated, supremely expensive. There's so many ways to have a bad time because of all of the different rules that the theme parks have now put in to try to control the crowds. You have to now anticipate every move as long as six months ahead of time. And it's exhausting. And uh, unfortunately... You know, there are a lot of books out there, but they're also pretty daunting. They're thick and they're complicated and there's such a thing as too much information where you just want to put your head in the sand and say, forget it, we're going to the beach. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I do it. I mean, to try to help people sort through this, there's a massive uh, PR machine behind these companies. And there's not a lot pushing the other way. And, and
0: you're not the uh, shill for the industry here. I mean, you're you're in favor of the whole thing, but you're a consumer advocate in your right. work. And
1: Yeah, Disney does not pay us a penny. And I imagine they'd pay us to make us stop saying one of the things we say. It's all completely independent because it needs to be said.
0: So you're saying if a parent is a tour guide for the family trip to Orlando, and if you equip yourself with good information and if you read it in advance and expect yourself to travel smart, all that effort pays off. How does it pay off in the case of a family vacation to Orlando?
1: Well, in the case of Disney, because that's what most people think of when they think of Orlando, even though there's a great deal more. But in Disney, it means you get to do the things that you wanted to do because, you know, Disney has put in things over the years like a meal plan and and a special reservation system that gets you on rides uh, with a short line that have complicated things to the point where if you don't make a plan ahead of time, you're not going to get anything at all. You can't go into a sit down restaurant at a Disney theme park anymore without having had made a reservation days or weeks or months ahead of time. So if you just walk in cold, you're in trouble. Is this a way to take advantage of people
0: or is it just a way to make it go smoother for people?
1: Personally, I th- although the, the theme parks like to sell it as the latter, I think it's the former. Mm-hmm. I think that the theme parks know that if they uh, keep you on property, mm-hmm. if they make you prepay your days, if they don't give you a mechanism by which you can take a couple days off to explore other things in town... Then they've got you and it works because many people tend to go to Orlando, just jump on the Disney bus at the airport, be delivered to the Disney property and never come off again. Disney, it's set up. You can't even if I'm staying 10 days and I want to spend three days in the middle seeing other things like manatees or, you know, Cape Kennedy. I can't. I've already had to pay for those three days and you can't take a break. And if you're going to pay for those three days, you're probably just going to stay on property and forget about the rest of Orlando. And it's too bad.
0: Jason Cochran writes Fromer's guidebook to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. He also writes about his darkly comedic road trip to investigate historical legends across the country in his book, Here Lies America. He'll be back with us in July to tell us about that on Travel with Rick Steves. His website is jasoncochran.com. So the whole thing seems overwhelming to me. Can you set Mm -hmm. the scene? What are the parks? What are the attractions? And you got beyond that.
1: Yeah. In in the old days, it was uh, Cypress Gardens and you'd go and you'd see women water skiing as they went through the, you know, Esther Williams type stuff. That's what kicked it all off in central Florida. Then Disney came and then Universal came. Disney has four theme parks, two water slide parks and a massive shopping and entertainment district. Universal has two theme parks, one water slide park, and also another dining and entertainment district. They go head to head increasingly. Disney, of course, is very aggressive because it has shareholders that want more return to them every single year. And Universal is owned by Comcast, which I think sees an opening in the situation in Orlando because it's very aggressively growing. We used to say it's Disney plus uni- Universal, and more and more, they're almost on an equal footing. Hmm. And then there's SeaWorld. SeaWorld, of course, used to be bigger, but for a lot of reasons that we all know about, has really kind of slipped way out of the top tier and it's now like a B-level attraction. How much is
0: it to do with uh, media empires? Because they're both owned by big media companies. Are these, to a certain degree, ways to stoke their profits in movies? Yeah. Or is yeah. it vice versa?
1: Well, I think it's both. I mean, if they call it IP there, intellectual property. An IP attraction would be a ride that features characters from a movie, for example. Mm. You know, in the old days more of the attractions at Disney were a lot more soft sell. There was a carousel. There were the teacups that you could ride in, but it didn't necessarily make you want to go buy a ticket to Alice in Wonderland. In fact, you couldn't back then because there uh-huh. were no downloads or DVDs. But now everything on display is an ad for something that is still available and still on sale. And so the parks are getting more and more aggressive about inserting IP into everything that they do. So much so that even old parks that used to have No sense of IP, like Epcot, which was really more of a World's Fair kind of ripoff, now is getting more and more IP stuck into it. What is it, intellectual property? Intellectual property. So if Disney is having a movie that's a
0: huge hit and all the little girls want that princess, you're going to see a spike in sales at the amusement park.
1: Yeah, and you're going to hear it nonstop. Only about uh, six months ago did they stop playing Let It Go from Frozen to Death. You couldn't get away from it. Yeah, they milk it for all it's worth.
0: So what's the latest on the competition between Disney and Universal?
1: Really, really spicing up. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, Prices aren't going down across the board. People are going no matter, even though prices are going up. So I think that the corporations, again, see nothing but growth in the future. Universal is going to build a brand new third theme park called Fantastic Worlds. It'll be open in about three or four years And it's really going to be interesting because in the old days, you know, Disney has four parks, Universal has two. You can see how people would spend more time at Disney than Universal. But now they're going to be neck and neck with each other. And Universal's hotels also, and recently, about five months ago, they opened up a brand new hotel called the Endless Summer Resort. And this was priced exactly $1 below Disney's cheapest resort. Ah. So it's an obvious, obvious shot across the bow. Because, again, these resort hotels have also been much higher than the market price because they're belonging to the resort. But people still want to stay in them because they feel like it's more convenient.
0: Is it sort of like an all-or-none decision for the typical tourist that goes to Orlando? Do they just decide because there's so many theme parks and there's so many associated things and there's so many gimmicks to get you buying in and committed to one or the other that this is going to be a Disney trip or this is going to be uh I a, think, a yeah,
1: it's about to fall apart, though, because Comcast is putting so much cash into growing itself through the Universal you know, brand. So I do think, yes, that's the way it has been, but I think it's changing. I think when I was a kid, my parents loved Disney. It was sort of a brand-new thing to my parents' generation, and so, of course, they brought me to Walt Disney World yeah. in the 70s. I don't see younger kids today being as passionate about the Disney brand. I see them enjoying it, but they've got a lot of incredible input all over their lives through television and streaming and everything. So they're not as brand loyal, I don't think. They don't have stars in their eyes the way we did when we were kids. I think that's a recipe for danger in the future because, you know, my parents took me and I would take my kids. But who are these kids? They're not going to really necessarily care if they go to Disney or not, I don't think.
0: And it's quite an accomplishment for Universal to have carved its share of the pie.
1: Yeah, and it did it by not going for the exact same market that Disney went for. Disney's rides are just a little bit on the tame side, so you can bring grandma if grandma's hearty. Uh, Mm -hmm. Universal, they lean much more to what would appeal to your teenager once they've outgrown that princess stuff. So that's one reason they can coexist relatively well. This is
0: Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jason Cochran, and Jason's the editor-in-chief at Fromers.com, and he writes their guidebook to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. So, Jason, we're talking about uh, Universal and Disney World, but you also have Orlando in your guidebook, and if you're not going to get sucked into committing your entire vacation to one or other of these parks because of the various passes they have and so on,
1: what else is left? There's a lot of honky-tonk, you know, Niagara Falls-level of nonsense, like wax museums and that kind of thing. I'm going to put that aside because... I think that's sort of a standard at any Myrtle Beach type destination, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the big stuff that I really wish more people would go and do, top of my list is Cape Kennedy. You know, this is where the moonshots came from. This is Mm. where the space shuttle program was based. This is even now where SpaceX and the new privately funded programs are underway even now. And you can take a tour and see all these incredible accomplishments of the past and people getting ready to do new ones in the future, but it's unfairly ignored. It's about an hour east of Disney, through the swamp on a very lonely road, then you come out by the water, and it's beautiful, but most people aren't willing to do that
0: drive. It probably just doesn't uh, advertise itself as cleverly and aggressively as a big commercial theme park would. Well,
1: when, when we were, when I was a kid, you know, it was big. People mm-hmm. went because the moon landing was fresh in people's minds, oh, and I yeah. think people have learned to take it for granted. You know, there was a period in the 80s and 90s when there's a new space shuttle going up monthly, mm-hmm. and I think that's around the time people started I don't know, becoming jaded about our achievements in space. Okay, so that'd be a good sort of thing to consider from a
0: parenting point of view. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the theme parks are fun, but check out the Kennedy Space Center. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Meg is on the phone all the way from Australia uh, in Perth. Meg, thanks for your call.
5: Hi, Rick. Hi, Jason. Hello, Meg. I haven't been to Florida for more than 20 years, and I'm planning a family holiday in there next year with my husband and two teenage children. And we'd like to spend um, time in the Orlando area, visiting the theme parks and also exploring the other sites around Orlando. We're huge Disney fans, and we are very excited about the new Star Wars Galaxy Edge Park. We've got three weeks in total. And then we would like to drive down the east coast of Florida from St. Augustine to Key West. And we might even add a weekend in Cuba at the end of our holiday. So I was wondering, how many days do you think we need to eat to the Disney and Universal parks?
4: I
1: tend to say about one day per park for first-timers. And then she's
0: going to complement the park going with some natural reserves and national parks, right, Meg?
5: Yeah, we would really like to uh, see the Everglades and the big Cypress Swamp, and we'd like to, um, as we drive down the coast, make sure we visit the Kennedy Space Center. Mm. And we really are into nature to so see what other natural there are in national parks in Florida
1: yeah the Everglades National Park which is down in South Florida near Miami is of course untouched beautiful wetlands that are most people who go in there come out kind of amazed that such an incredible safari could exist in the middle of such a heavily developed state and I maybe wouldn't spend tons of time on the East Coast once you get south of Jupiter because it's a very developed place Uh, West Coast tends to be less developed than the East Coast in Florida, Hmm. but the ride down to Key West take lots of time to stop off. If you feel like you can handle the cold water and snorkel, there are a number of state parks that are up and down uh, the drive between Miami and Key West that are definitely worth stopping off at as well.
0: All right. Meg, thanks for your call, and have a great family vacation in Florida. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jason Cochran. Jason's the editor-in-chief at Fromers.com, and he writes their guidebook to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. It's out in its 2020 edition. If you're looking for old Florida before all of this massive tourism came, can you find any of that in Orlando? Is there anything charming from
1: the old days surviving? If you go out of Orlando a bit, especially a little bit to the north there are some beautiful state parks up there um where kind of at the bottom of the St. John's River. In the old days, in the 1800s, people would go to Florida and ride steamships on the inland rivers. You don't get that anymore, of course, mm. but there's still that kind of intense, jungly feeling when you get out of the city and you start exploring some of the more rural areas. There's um the Wikiwachi mermaid, mermaids. Have you ever heard of, of this outfit? No. They've been around for I don't know, maybe 60 or 70 years now. They hail from a I guess a simpler time when they would dress young women up as mermaids and the attraction was you watch them sort of perform and look back at you through thick glass and they still do it and there are women who are very proud to be wiki-wachi mermaids and have been for, for many years and you know they sneak away from the glass and take a breath of air through a tube and then come back. <laughs> no. um, you haven't seen anything like this because it's of another era. You know the, That kind of entertainment would have been the bee's knees back yeah, in the
0: 1940s. The bee's knees and you can still do that. What's it called again?
1: Wiki-wachi mermaids.
0: Uh, Okay, now you mentioned uh, uh, an overlooked experience is the Kennedy Space Center. What's a couple of other things we should be mindful of to kind of uh, consider along with the famous parks?
1: I would think also the uh, the Vietnamese community that lives in Orlando. Uh, Most people aren't really aware, but a huge number of people came from Vietnam in the late 1970s after, you know, the dust settled and resettled in the Orlando area. So you have an incredible proliferation of fantastic food. And a lot of it's really quite affordable, under $10 often for a main plate. So, the main area is just north of downtown. there's all sorts of nicknames for the, for the neighborhood, but it's at Mills Avenue where it meets uh, it's Mills 50. It's right kind of in the center of town, essentially, even though it sounds like it's a it's, uh, rural. That's, so you can just walk from shop to shop and yeah, really sounds, fill up.
0: Sounds like a great way to give an extra dimension to your trip to Orlando. We got Ed on the line from uh, Burlington in Ontario. Ed, thanks for your call. Got a question for Jason?
6: Yes, I was wondering about the uh, uh, the best beaches in proximity to Orlando.
1: I would head east. Both on the east coast sure. and um, west coast. If you go west to the Gulf of Mexico, they're, they're quite busy near Tampa and St. Petersburg. But uh, there have been red tides recently, and it's a much calmer uh, experience on the water. If you go east, uh, the water turns more. It's a bit more active. It's the Atlantic, and so it tends to be a little bit fresher, and the beaches feel more like your traditional beaches. Like Cocoa Beach is one of the more popular ones near Orlando. It's pretty much just a little bit uh, off from where Kennedy Space Center is, so they can be visited in the same day if it was a very busy day.
6: How about New Smyrna Beach?
1: Yeah, very popular as well. Florida is one big beach. It's not like other places where you get little inlets and rocky coves. It's one beach. So really, in my opinion, to get a good beach, you just sort of avoid the cities. That mm-hmm. usually takes care of whatever you need. The east coast of Florida is, you're spoiled for choice.
6: For sure. Okay, thanks very much.
1: Thanks for your call, Ed. This is Travel with Rick Steves.
0: We've been talking with Jason Cochran. He's the author of Fromer's Guide to Disney World, Universal in Orlando. And Jason, uh, just to wrap things up, what are your best tips for handling the big crowds and uh, avoiding wasting a lot of time in lines? Because I imagine that's a huge challenge for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it's the biggest challenge. People forget that you're going to be spending most of your time looking at your family in lines, so you'd better make sure you're all on good terms before you set out for a vacation. (laughs) Well, The one easy one that everyone knows about is the fast pass, which enables you to, there are two lines for many of these attractions. One is if you don't have a reservation, one is if you do. If you do have a reservation, you can get in like 10, 15 minutes. However, you only can get so many of them in a certain day, three Mm -hmm. of them to start. And once you use them, you can maybe get more. So use your Fast Passes on the most popular attractions that you can. Don't go Mm -hmm. see a little movie or a parade with them. Use them on the big stuff, because the big stuff will always have the longest line. So that's, I think, essential. And unfortunately, it also requires a little pre-planning. If you're staying at a Disney resort, they let you get a Fast Pass, I think, about three months ahead of time. If you're not staying on Disney property, you get a month. And if you wait until the day you walk into the park, you're just going to get scraps. As you worked on this last book, What was the most exciting, sort of gratifying
0: discovery you made that you thought this is going to help a lot of travelers?
1: Hmm. I think it's partly that the resorts, the giant companies, are finally, finally making uh, hotels that are cheap enough for the average family. It's always been really infuriating that knowing how little people can afford these days and how expensive this is, and people are going into debt sometimes to give their kids this adventure, that they're finally, you know, respecting that and making it open to people who might be of of lower incomes than used to be able to do it before. I love that.
0: All right. Jason Cochran, thanks so much and best wishes with your work, writing and updating your guidebook to all the fun in and around Orlando.
1: Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it
0: a look at what you can find in some of the great cities of Switzerland. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Hello, my name is Antoine Bonfils and I come from the Languedoc, the south part of France. I have a little proverb. It's very simple. It's qui dîne. It means who sleeps, eats, or dines. It means if you go to bed early, you don't have to eat. In a time that people were poor, I could not afford a dinner. So we were saying, sorry, you will not have anything to eat, but it's better to go to bed with an empty stomach. You will sleep better. Or when you're traveling and it's late, you don't find any place to dine. So you say, okay, never mind. Qui dort dine? If I don't have my meal, I will sleep better. Qui dort dine? He who sleeps dines. It's hard to resist the call of the Alps and the stunning views from its mountain trails and villages. But there are also so many elegant and entertaining cities in Switzerland that it's a challenge to pick just one or two to visit. Cities whose names might remind us of major diplomatic accomplishments and sports competitions. For my travels, I'd have to say my favorite Swiss cities are Zurich, Bern, Lucerne, and Lausanne. I've asked Swiss tour guide Miriam Grub to join us now to share her insights on the cities of Switzerland. Miriam was born in a small town in German-speaking Switzerland and now lives in the French-speaking city of Lausanne, where she's also been working as a translator. Miriam, Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. You're
0: you're a small-town village girl. Yes, I am. (laughs) So you grew up in the wonderful mountains of German-speaking Switzerland. The country is broken into many different parts, German, French, Italian-speaking. When you looked at the big cities from the village as a small girl, what did you think?
2: Wow, everything went so fast. (laughs) The rhythm of life was just so much faster. I have a memory of visiting Zurich as a little girl, and I did not walk fast enough, so somebody pushed me aside.
0: <laughs> Is that right? Because yes. you are in a village where life was not go, go, go.
2: No, no, it wasn't, and I was not used to it.
0: I've got a friend who's a school teacher in a little tiny village in the Berner Oberland, and he would take his school group into the big city, and it was like going to another world for them.
2: It's That's just true. a couple hours away. Yeah, it is a different world. I can still um, hear people from the countryside when I visit them telling me about the city's different and what they experienced in the big city, and we talk about it like that.
0: So Zurich is sort of the big city of big cities, and Zurich has a nickname I, I think it's really fun, Zu Reich and too Ruig.
2: I've never heard the second one. It's so, Too it's, rich it, and too quiet. Yes. So um, people
0: who want a more crazy city, they go somewhere. Zurich is a, a formal city. People are serious about business.
2: Yes, it is the business town of Switzerland.
0: What is the reputation of the people that live in Zurich?
2: You want the honest one or the one that's the marketing? <laughs>
0: Give me the... We'll find the marketing one when we read the tourist brochure. Give me the honest one. What do people think about the Zurich?
2: Quite arrogant people.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, thinking always about money, mm-hmm. business... Mm-hmm. And, yeah, as I said... It's sort of
0: the hard-hitting financial capital. It's it is. like Wall Street.
2: It is. Like, yep. if you
0: if you wanted to have one city that was just Wall Street in Switzerland, yeah. I suppose it would be but Switzerland. Yeah, but it's called
2: Bahnhofstrasse. It doesn't sound as impressive Bahnhofstrasse. <laughs> so you walk down
0: Bahnhofstrasse today, you see a lot of banks.
2: You can see a lot of luxury boutiques, and then you come to Paradeplatz, and this is where you have all the Swiss banks together around one square.
0: And in front of the jewelry stores, you have flower boxes that are actually barriers to keep thieves away from their cars, so you can't crash through the wall and grab all the jewels. Yes, It's all Swiss, it's all careful, it's all secure.
2: Yes, but you don't see it. It's a flower box. It's a
0: flower box, but it's a fortification. So what else would you find if you went to Zurich as a visitor?
2: Yeah, if you look beyond all that uh, busy part, you will find a very charming old town very near to the city center. It's called Niederdörfli. Mm-hmm. It was a village long, mm-hmm. long time ago.
0: Because Dorf means village. I know that much in German. So that's, when you see that word, it's a hint.
2: That's right. Okay. So yeah, that's a very charming part of Zurich. And
0: Zurich, like like I think every city I can think of is, is on a lake in Switzerland.
2: Yes, there is the Lake of Zurich.
0: So you have romantic walks.
2: You have very beautiful walks along the lake shore. And there is also a river going through the city. So like in almost every Swiss city, you can jump in the river and just swim down, let you float down, and then you reach the lake where you can have a swim.
0: You can do that in Zurich. In Zurich as well. Because I've done that quite famously in uh, Bern, the capital. Yeah. Talk about that. We walk up the river in Bern.
2: Yes, we walk up the river in Bern, and there are so many people doing the same, everybody already wearing swimsuits. So you're in a crowd of people wearing swimsuits. <laughs> Hiking up the river Hiking from the city centre.
0: The Capitol building is just
2: overhead. Yes. And then at some point you will just jump into the river, we'll let the down. river take you down to the city centre. And you will have a very beautiful view on the parliament building of Switzerland that you will see from the, down there. And this the is river. not just
0: the people from the youth hostel or the, the students. This is everybody. everybody. Even, even the legislators and, and the politicians. Yes.
2: There was an Instagram post from a Swiss politician that uh, took a selfie in a swimsuit and <laughs> posted it. And then somebody from the U.S. replied. I think it was uh, perhaps Saturday Night Live. Uh-huh. saying... Wow, <laughs> what a nice life Swiss politicians sleep in the it. lunch break. They can go swimming in the river. <laughs> and then
0: you have to. Nev- I've done this before, and you have to be careful because you have a pole to grab, and the river goes quite quickly. And if you don't swim over to that pole, you can miss the beach and go all the way down.
2: Yes, that's dangerous. So please, if you try. Go out, and the first sign says go out. There's going to be a second one uh, saying go out, really?
0: (laughs) Let's pretend the first one is the last one.
2: You have to pretend.
0: And if you miss that, you've got one more chance. Two. Okay, two.
2: To make it sure that everyone gets uh, out. But please, please grab the first one. (laughs) You could
0: also go all the way up to Lake Toon and get in a rubber life raft, and then you have an afternoon floating down the river.
2: Yes, and what is perfect is, well, either you take your beverages, your beer or lemonade. So we're having a floating party. Yeah, and you take them, um, you put them in the water and you just take them with you so it's always fresh. Or there are a lot of little pop-up bars.
0: Along the river. That you
2: can't reach when you walk, but only by the little boat and you can go there.
0: You dock and you get yourself a drink and carry on. Yes. Swiss people know how to have fun. Who'd thunk?
2: Yeah. We are not very <laughs> known for that. but We can We're be fun, very, too. We uh? can be fun
0: <laughs> for that. Now, Bern is an elegant city. This is the capital, and it's built in a very tight bend of the river. Very logical, because you had fortification, a, a moat on three sides. Fortify the one side, and you put your cathedral and your government center right there. And today, it's beautifully preserved because, what, 600 years ago, they decided no more wooden buildings.
2: Yes, because there was a fire. And because everything was built together, the houses being very close, well, mm-hmm. the fire destroyed a huge part of the town. And it was a very wealthy town at that time. So they decided that every building from there on had to be in sandstone. So not only in stone, but in sandstone.
0: So there's a uniformity that's four or five centuries old. It's, and it's a just, It's a gorgeous city. It's remarkably well-preserved. And from a traveler's point of view, you get off at the train station. It's at the top of the peninsula. You have the main street going right down the middle of the peninsula to the bridge that crosses the river. And then you have the bear pits. Yes. Why the bears?
2: Well, the bear has always been the symbolic animal of uh, Bern. That means they have kept bears from the beginning, living bears they thought would be their lucky.
0: My favorite memory of Bern is going up to the top of the spire of the church in the cathedral. And there's a man that lives up there. He's the the bellkeeper, the city watchman. He takes care of these bells. Have you been up there for that?
2: I don't take groups up there because there's so many stairs, but it's so worth it. What's um, it like?
0: What do you experience when you go to the top of the bell tower?
2: Well, it gets the more and more narrow uh-huh. and you get just a beautiful view. And then you have these bells that are the biggest bells of Switzerland, <laughs> the heaviest ones. and With
0: massive clappers. Yes,
2: they're huge. <laughs> I
0: have never seen anything like it. And this Peter, I think his name was, I don't know if he's still there, but he would swing that clapper and he'd swing it, and it would get bigger and bigger, and when that thing finally hit the bell, my whole world was shaking. It's one of those experiences you never forget. (music) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Swiss cities with Miriam Grob. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Amanda's ringing in from Chicago. Amanda, have you enjoyed any uh, urban travel thrills in Switzerland?
6: Yes, I have. I'm a lawyer, and I spent about a third of last year working in Zurich. So it gave me the chance to spend my days doing that very the more austere, businessy side. And then after getting to the old town and getting all of that fun traditional Swiss stuff, I had the chance with the colleagues I met there to go find some more restaurants that were unexpected for Zurich.
0: Unexpected favorite one no.
6: was a place called Frau Gerold's which is A beer garden that has all of your kind of things you would expect a beer garden to have but was made out of shipping containers and ferry lights like a little west of one of the train stations and Ah. just a completely unexpected for
0: Zurich. A beer garden in Zurich called Frau Gerald's Garden. Miriam, do you know about this place?
2: I do. I've never been there, but you can see it from the train when you arrive to Zurich because of the ship containers. <laughs> so this is a kind of trendy
0: new food place, I think, and uh, when you travel in Switzerland, you've got all sorts of energy that way in the big cities, and each city I think has its own sort of uh, energy after dark when it comes to dining out.
6: Yeah, it's a very fun location because it's a mix of younger people, little older, and just, it's full of, you know, kind of Swiss term that is you wouldn't expect.
0: Amanda, did you find it uh, affordable or Switzerland can be frighteningly expensive?
6: Definitely pricey. Um, I had the benefit of being on a work trip that meant I got to expense things. Um, But it definitely is much higher than the norm. So for a long stay would be hard, but on a short trip, if you plan wisely.
0: It's a good reminder that there's some fun, there's some uh, creative, trendy, foodie places that you can check out, especially in the big cities. Amanda, thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Miriam Grobe about great cities in Switzerland. Miriam, let's just finish with a few words about Lucerne and Lausanne. When we go to Lucerne, it's famous for its wooden bridge. What do you think of as far as the attractions of Lucerne?
2: Lucerne is the most picturesque city. It is the postcard town of Switzerland. The wooden bridge has always these red flowers Mm, uh, on it that Switzerland is so famous for. And there is this beautiful old town. There's also a lake, a view on the mountains. So it has all the ingredients of Switzerland as we imagine it.
0: Being on the lake is so nice, and then you can walk over to the memorial to the lion, which was a memorial to the Swiss mercenaries. It's a dramatic sight. When you see the lion carved into the rocks, what does it mean to you?
2: I have a personal history linked to that lion because uh, on my mother's side, we are from Lucerne, and so I traveled a lot to Lucerne when I was uh-huh. a child, and we always went there. My mother took me there to have a look at the lion. We loved it as a child, and I didn't get it. I was always wondering why it was dying, because it is. Uh, it has spears uh, yeah. piercing the, the body, and uh, yeah, it, it was kind of frightening. It's a
0: memorial for 700 Swiss mercenaries who were killed, right? Uh, That's def- defending the French king and queen.
2: That's true because... Uh, yes,
0: the, the, the Swiss were hired to be mercenaries. We know about the Swiss Guard in the Vatican, but they went to all different places.
2: The Swiss Guard in Vatican exists because the Swiss were so famous for being good soldiers. Right. And they uh, worked as mercenaries. They, uh-huh. they were, it was a very poor country uh-huh. until a few uh, centuries ago. So what was very dramatic was that some people from Lucerne had to fight against uh, people from their own canton. So that means that the people were mercenaries, were paid... Oh, that's so sad. So yeah. poor
0: boys went away to fight, uh, and oftentimes they end up fighting each other.
2: There is one very in Switzerland famous moment when um, near Milan in mm-hmm. uh, the northern Italy. There were two armies. um, Both were mercenaries from Switzerland, and there were different counts that were fighting each other. They both had their Swiss armies, and they ordered the Swiss armies to fight, and they refused because they didn't want to fight.
0: (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Miriam Grobe. We're talking about Swiss cities. Uh, The last city I want to talk about, Miriam, is Lausanne, and it's in the south on Lake Geneva, or Lac Laman, I think you say in Swiss. And Lausanne is interesting because it has two zones. It's got a lake zone and an up-on-the-hill zone.
2: Yes, Lausanne is built on the hill, so you have only one road, and I mean literally one road that is flat.
0: So that people must be in good shape. These We are
2: in perfect. I live in Lausanne, so I say <laughs> we we are in perfect shape. There were statistics about who were the women in Switzerland who had the nicest legs, and guess who won?
0: Lausanne. Yeah. Well, there's a payoff for having to hike all those steep roads then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get exhausted going there to update my book and visiting all those places, but it is worth the hike because there's beautiful sights to see in Lausanne. There's a the, metro. Down on the... Oh, there's a metro that connects. There's a metro like, that goes you, up and in, down. In fact, when you know how to use the public transit, it really works like a Swiss clock. And uh, just when the bus gets off, you go to the elevator, you have the escalator, you have the funicular, and before you know it, you're lakeside. Yes. And when you're lakeside, it's like a wonderland, this Lac Leman. It's so beautiful. Across that is the French Alps. And then uh, on the lake, we have the Olympic Museum.
2: So we have the uh, Olympic Museum, and this is also the boat station. So we have a beautifully restored historical boat, steamboat.
0: Uh Mm -hmm. It's a lovely excursion on the lake. You could go over to um, Chateau Chillon.
2: Yes, you can take the boat and directly reach Chateau de Chillon, and you will see the wine yards that Mm. are along the lake shore. Swiss wine. Swiss wine, surprisingly good. Only white wine you, can, you know,
0: people don't know Swiss wine because not much is produced and it's not really exported very we much. We keep
2: it for ourselves because we, it we like ourselves. it. <laughs> I look forward to the Swiss
0: white wine when I'm in the French part of Switzerland. I drink beer in the German part of Switzerland, but I drink the local Swiss wine when I'm in yeah, the Yeah, come and the, have a French glass part. with me. <laughs> and then there's also a fascinating museum in Lausanne filled with art done by people who were locked up because they were considered criminally insane.
2: It is a very special place. Um, It's called Arbrut, and it is the first museum of that kind in the world, the biggest collection. And this is very, very emotionally intense art, beautiful, because these people were locked up, were considered insane, and they produced a world, a universe of their own, and you just walk through this place. Um I go there so often and it's an energy in there that is incredible.
0: I find it an- inspiring also. Oh, yeah. This is Art Brut, B-R-U-T.
2: Uh, yes, and really um it is inspiring as well. It's not only depressing, it's touching. It touches us in a very deep way. It's
0: thought-provoking because who's mm. crazy anyways, you know? Yeah.
2: This is what the founder of the collection said. It is not only the, the art of the, the crazy because... To produce art in itself, you have to be crazy. A
0: great example of some of the surprises you'll find when you get out of the Alps in Switzerland and check out the cities. We've been talking about Zurich, Bern, Lucerne, and Lausanne. Miriam, let's pretend I'm your guest and you're going to take me to one favorite experience in each of these cities. What would we do in Zurich?
2: So, in Zurich, I would take you to a church called Frau Münster, it's in the heart of the city. In front of it is a little garden, a little lawn. Uh, you can relax, enjoy a look, a view on the river. You would be quite alone, even if it's in the heart of the city. And you can, might even have a look inside, where uh, you discover a piece of Marc Chagall.
0: Stained glass window by Marc Chagall. Yes. Sounds good. Take me to Bern and show me one special thing.
2: In Bern, you must have the best Swiss gelato. Mm. We also do gelato. <laughs> <laughs> we are surprising.
0: Where would I find that?
2: Um, you go down to the Matte quartier, that's a neighborhood called Matte, and it's the uh, Gelateria di Berna. The Gelateria di Bern, um, the, it, gelateria di Bern yeah. the,
0: the city gelateria. You okay. can't miss
2: it, there's a huge file, on a lo- huge a line. big line of big people, line.
0: The, the most popular the gelateria. Okay, let's go to the city with the famous wooden bridge on the lake, the city of Lucerne.
2: There, um, you have to join me um, for a tour on a pedalo. Do you know what it is?
0: No, what's a pedal boat?
2: Um, This is one of these little boats, uh, like a bicycle. Yeah, Yeah, a pedal boat.
0: Bicycle on the the lake. That sounds fun. A good view of the city from the water.
2: Yes, because you have the perfect view on the mountains and on the city back. You do some sport. You can jump in the lake to have a swim at the same time.
0: Be careful of the old-fashioned steamers. (laughs) Yes. The big boats are coming and going. I love that dock there in Lucerne, which is going to all ports along the lake. Mm -hmm. Beautiful excursions. And finally, down in the south, in the French-speaking part, on Lake Leman, what would we do in Lausanne?
2: We would enjoy a glass of wine, of white wine, just a few minutes from the city center in front of an art museum that is called Hermitage. And there's a park. We have a beautiful view on the lake, on the city, the historical center. There's a little bar, very nice. We enjoy a glass of white wine and have a look at the sunset.
0: It sounds like the Swiss people have some beautiful parks in their big cities. Yes, Fantastic. we do have. Miriam Grobe, thanks so much for a better understanding of urban Switzerland.
2: Thank you for listening to me and willkommen in der Schweiz. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner
0: and Casmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnikov. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to KPCC Pasadena for studio help this week. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent
5: a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.